Hello, Booth Oneers. I, I just copyrighted that, by the way. Booth Oneers. Welcome to our program. I'm Gary Zabinski with the eternally stalwart Roscoe by my side. How are you, Roscoe? I'm uh, frisky. Because <laughs> you weren't frisky last time, but you you you, you sort of kind of eased into friskiness with uh, Becky Menzi. I remember when you were saying you were about as troubled as a willow in a windstorm, something like that. I'm as jumpy as a puppet on a string. We're back once more to celebrate the art of lively conversation and ponder the worlds of theater, art, and popular culture. So, Roscoe, I was out about earlier in Evanston, wandering around the streets. And I come across this man in front of the Blick Art uh, store wearing a sandwich board advertising the new revival of Tony and Tina's wedding. And guess who it is? <laughs> it's director Paul Strolley. Paul, were you and really I said, worried? I said, what are you, what are you doing for no, the next here's, hour? Here's what happened. First of all, very excited to be here. Very excited. Thanks, Just, thanks I'm, for I'm, coming back. I'm more excited than... The Hungry Baby in a Topless Bar. I am very excited. Uh, <laughs> and uh, they, they won't let me stand on that street corner anymore because it's right outside uh, Edible Arrangements. Is that the name of it? Edible Arrangements? Yes. And I found out that you can't go in at, it, it's edible arrangements and order something to have there. They don't take very <laughs> well to because I've always just wanted to go in and say, I'd like that display. And I, I'm going to have it here. Yeah. I'm just stand there <laughs> and eat an entire g you know, floral give, display. Yeah, give me the honeydew melon yeah. bouquet. Right, and, and I'm just going to have it here. And, a, and two forks. Yeah, I, yeah. I'm not a fan of edible arrangements. I, everything tastes the same. Well, it's, like, it's, it's like Panda Express. It's like chicken, uh, shrimp, and beef all with that glaze on it. Yes. It all tastes exactly yes. the same. This is when you get the, the fruit right. that's in cut a, up to look like in flowers. In a flower bouquet. And everyone thinks sort. it's a lovely idea. Yeah. It is a flies. lovely idea. It it's just doesn't, it, it doesn't, doesn't work it doesn't in reality. It's, a, it's well. a lovely idea that lasts for about nine seconds. Mm, and yeah, then you're yeah. just like, right. it's starting to slime over and get it away Wait, from I just I have to write down. Do not seek sponsorship from Edible Arrangements. Or Panda Express while we're or at it. Or Panda Express. My or, apologies. Or, or, or Blick Art Supplies. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I asked Paul to just come over and sit in. I hope you don't mind, Ross. I, well, I'm feeling slightly threatened because he's a funny guy. I want to ask you about something you saw, Roscoe. You went to something called the Skivvies earlier this week. Tell our guests and oh. our listeners what the Skivvies well, was and the, how you enjoyed your overall the, the, experience. The Skivvies is a <laughs> New York-based nightclub act. It's an actor and an actress, and the actress, she uh, has the second female lead in Wonderful Town at the Goodman currently. Okay. They became famous over the internet because they would just get together to make music and he plays an amplified, like an electronic ukulele. And she plays a bass fiddle, which is, there's, there's um, just the strings are there. It's a modern. Oh, yeah, yeah, I've seen those, yeah. Modern version, and they perform in their underwear. And Hence the term. Skivvies. Yeah. And what they, they do alt-rock versions of just about any different genre of music you can imagine. So she's doing Wonderful Town. This was the one night that she brought in her partner, who does the show with her. This is the woman who plays Eileen, Eileen Sherwood. And her name is? Lauren Molina. Lauren Molina, quite talented. Oh, wow. And they brought in, the show was fantastic. It was, it, this was at the underground, Uptown Underground 
Do you know that I don't, space? I don't. Which is a cabaret type bar it, space. It's in Uptown, and it's in the middle of a block where there's nothing else, and it seems to be an abandoned building. <laughs> right, right. And they open a nightclub in the basement. As all the best so you, ones are. You yeah. feel extremely safe there with the rats running <laughs> through the corridors. I did not see a rat, but they had a packed house. And then they invited, they probably had 10 guests. They had someone from Hamilton get up and perform a number with wow. them. Other people, the other, uh, Brie Sudia. The other, uh, the the other, other female the, lead the, from uh, Wonderful Town. Yeah. And, and they make them all wear underwear or something like underwear. Some of the larger people wore nightgowns. Do you get pa- <laughs> <And the> man, <laughs> do you get man. past that after a while, and it just becomes part of the show, or yeah. do you laugh every time somebody yeah, comes and out in their underwear? she is in great shape, I must say. Lauren. Lauren. She looks she's fantastic on stage. Trim. Yeah. And it was fun, wildly entertaining. I keep thinking about what it would be like to, I mean, if you were standing next to a real bass violin, you'd always look slender because, you know, that's, but yes. if you're standing next to one of the new modernized ones, which is basically a stick with four strings, you know, you could be <laughs> Callista Flockhart and still look like Orson Welles. Good yes. point. You know? and, and, and I never thought of that. And, and, and you know how people. Well, you're not as vain <laughs> as I am. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> you know, people always find me charming. <laughs> Actually, they don't. So we it was first come, first served. I thought there was going to be a list. You were going to read that. <laughs> yes. and Here are the three are. people. <laughs> so it's first come, first served, seating people, every, everyone's standing outside. We run in, and I sit down. We get in the second row, and I'm unfortunately behind sort of a large man, and I'm worried about not being able to see the show. So none too subtly, I say, well, I can hope I can see the show with this large guy sitting in front of me. And the large man turned around and said, hello, Roscoe. How are you? It was a friend of mine, and I hadn't recognized him. Someone I'd done a show with years ago. An an ex-friend of yours now. An ex-friend, yes. (laughs) So we got past it, and of course the stage was elevated, and I was panicked. I'm going to look for these guys and see if I can go to the Skivvies sometime. Is she local? Does she live in Chicago? No, they're New Yorkers. New Yorkers. And they have a following in San Francisco, Los Angeles, and um, Palm Beach. (laughs) 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 And New York. And they they play at uh, 54 Below. Yeah, they in, must have a tremendous York. like web following or something. This started with them doing uh, videos that they just put on YouTube. And they said, well, what do we wear? And he goes, let's just wear our underwear. And awesome. then it, it got lots of shares. Speaking of Wonderful Town, uh, we've talked extensively about this show at the Goodman. A, a rare, full-blown, beautifully staged, beautifully uh, designed uh, show at the Goodman Theater, which is kind of rare. For, for them, I mean, they don't do big musicals. Oh, no, no, it's not, okay. They're not known for that. So here's this musical directed by uh, Mary Zimmerman. So our producer and I went last night. You highly praised uh, this, this production. You uh, talked about the performances and how it was one showstopper after another, after another, and the, the audience went crazy, especially in the second act. I concur. Really? Oh, my God. But here's what I'll say. Here's my qualification. This is a perfect example of what a genius can do with mediocre material. This is not a very good show. It's never been a very no, good show. No, it's barely there. Simple music. It's not even worthy of Bernstein, really. <laughs> Some of the mm. jokes are fine, but, you know, there's long, tedious book scenes. Someone ought to give Mary Zimmerman, like, a genius grant or something. <laughs> oh, oh, oh I, she already, already has one. <laughs> <laughs> or a Tony Award or something. 
She designed this thing in its, its themes and its approach to the audience in a way that is so spectacularly done. Y- you can't really take your eyes off it. And it's entertaining from downbeat to end of final curtain. Uh, I-, I enjoyed it immensely. And I enjoyed mostly the style in which it was put together. Of course, the, the two performances, the two lead performances, which we've already talked about, are great. And I will say this about Bree Sudia. I think that this would be a performance that you would have seen from a young Fanny Bryce or even an Ethel Merman mm-hmm. in her heyday. Mm-hmm. It's brilliant. She does not miss a trick a moment of doing some fantastic piece of business, some brilliant line reading, something that brings that character, rather boring character, out from the depths of this, you know, admired, as I said, mediocre work. I just loved it. And the audience loved it, too. When I saw it, the audience was up for grabs. Ovation after ovation, practically cheering. They, they, They were pretty grabby. What what year was the the that on the town? The, the fifty four. So that, like that really says something about how much you liked it, because yep. like you said, that the even if the book scenes aren't tedious, we've gotten to a point with live theater spe- musicals now that we really don't have spoken scenes that last more than about a page and a half before you're back to the song, and that was of course kicked off when the rock opera or, you know, took over for the musical in the 70s and then the sort of been uh, hybrids of those two. So by saying that, even with it being a thin book, you know, for you to be that into it, coupled with the fact that it's a, a 50s era piece, it's not like Pajama Gamers or Little right, Abner right, or something right. or that thin. Well, and when we talked about this as well, that, that, that uh, Mary Zimmerman decided to update it to the period in which it was written. It was written in the 50s, but it was was originally set in the 30s. 30s. Now, were there things that I didn't like? Sure. I I wasn't fond of the moving set pieces of buildings. At one point, that Chrysler building almost fell over. It was, (laughs) I thought, thought, timber, uh, but somebody (laughs) saved it at the very, very last second. And here's, here's here's an example of Mary Zimmerman's genius. There were two clouds, one giant cloud and one smaller cloud that were hung far upstage against this cyclorama that was usually just blue. It was just the sky. And these clouds just appear there. They're two-dimensional clouds, and they're hanging clearly from wires. Well, they never stopped moving the entire <laughs> That's show. Right. They moved very slowly, <laughs> like clouds move, and they would get closer and closer. And then the next time you looked up, they'd be passing each other. And then every, I don't know, 10 or 12 minutes or so, an airplane would fly oh, through the sky yes. over the top of the city <laughs> fairly God slowly. For, thank God for computerized lighting bars. Uh, it? <laughs> it, it, it was, it, no, it was yeah. an actual two-dimensional cutout right, of right. an airplane but, yeah. that someone was clearly oh, really? pulling to race across the sky past these wow, clouds. Man. You know, those are the details that real, real creative genius pays attention to, and it made a difference. Should Wonderful we talk town. about another hit show in town? We should, <laughs> The, that perhaps our guest is affiliated with? Rot row, Rorge. Well, this, this thing opened a couple of, well, a week and a half ago, maybe two weeks ago. Well, I've, 
I'm sorry. You know, I'm sorry you have to sit here for this, Paul, because I, 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 I've never read reviews like this. <laughs> it's just, it's, it's just, uh, you know, I, you know what? And in fact, I'm going to, uh, I don't know. I don't, uh, you can leave if you want. Do you want to go? Oh, I'll stay right, for I, a bit. I'm going I'm to I'm read a couple of things, and then we'll, I don't know, we'll talk about it. I, I hope it's not closing. Well, if you it's have trouble closing. with it, uh, you could, the, the, the tattoo might be a little easier for right, you. Right. <laughs> a couple of comments here. Chicago Tribune said it's directed at lightning speed by Paul Strolley. And I don't know if that's good or bad. But their headline is, Tony and Tina's wedding is back, and it's a blast. Now a retro show, the satire is fueled with nostalgia. The Buzz News Net in Chicago says, Tony and Tina's wedding is back and hilarious as ever. I, I, I could go on and on. I've got pages. That, look, I've got pages and pages and pages. <laughs> well, thank you for reading what I brought. Nothing but, <laughs> nothing but rave reviews. Yeah. Congratulations, Thank my you. friends! It's, this is unbelievable. I wish I could take all. I wish I could take credit for no, it. No, no, take uh, all the credit. No, I could. I can take. I, I can take the credit of of being smart enough to get really good people and for a good part of the time stay out of their way. Uh, and that's what I have with this group here. You you hope for casts like this, and um, to have twenty four people and have like not the collective ego of one person. It's really. And in the trenches show, you're you're side by side with people, and I and I told the the actors very early on, you could be the best improviser in the world and not be a good fit for this show because it's not about how well you can improvise; it's how well you can engage people without victimizing people. And good actors who are acting the study of human nature, so good actors that can read people and know, okay, I know how much you want to play. And I know that maybe you don't want to play. And that's what makes the, the overall experience for everyone good. The, the level of, of shtick and, and the volume, the size of the performance that has overtaken what I call immersive theater, because it's much more than interactive, has gotten so big that it's, it's sort of unpleasant. It is like being in a theme park. And these are, this is small acting and, and filmic acting and, and intimate stuff. And you go in the bathroom and there's a nun crying there. And she, <laughs> she'll take one person aside. <laughs> and for 15 minutes, she'll give the whole, well, you know, Dominic and I dated in high school. And I'm taking are my vows. Are you serious? Oh, all this stuff happens. It happens in every corner of the room. What's so. the audience reaction, Ben? The, the roof comes off the place. Really? Uh, it really does. We've only been open three weeks, and we've had people back two or three times already. Wow. Because it's, you know, it's completely different where wow. you sit. And, and, uh, and this has got to be the toughest time in the world to do live theater. Because we have a, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, there's a baseball team in Chicago. I called, know. Called the Cubs. They play on the north side. Cubsters, I and, think. And tonight we will find out if they're going to be in the World Series. So everyone in Chicago has been watching. <laughs> you, you know, you talking about sports is like like me interpreting the Torah <laughs> somehow. <laughs> but I appreciate all of that. All I can say is we are desperate to go. We have an invitation from your publicist to yes. attend, and we're probably going to hit you up for some sort of booth one experience. Oh, we've um, already got a thing. We've got it arranged for you. We've got a special setup for the two of you. Does it involve nuns I'm by not, any chance? I'm going to give it away. They scare me. I'm nuns scare me. You're not going to hook me up with that stripper Together, no, you? I'm not. But you, uh, but you should know <laughs> that you are able to wear more than your underwear. 
Tony and Tina's skivvy wedding. Wow. Tony and Tina's <laughs> skivvy wedding. That could be next. You know what's funny though? You said about the modernization of that one of the of, on the town uh, and how it was modernized, updated from, from uh, uh, yeah, a couple a couple of decades. And so. I think one of the reasons that we're doing so well was intentionally not doing that. It's set it in the time that it was written in 1988, and and. So all the music is 80s music. The the bridesmaids dresses are 80s. I have seen productions of it in the past where they've modernized it, and it doesn't work as well. If you modernize it, there's too much of a similarity to like a Jersey Shore thing or a Real Housewives thing or something like that. And no one wants that anymore. It's very strident. It's very assaultive. It also makes it a dual property now because it's not only Tony and Tina's wedding interactive wedding show, but it's also uh, a retro. A retro experience too, which people just love, and the songs are phenomenal. I picked sounds only great. the best bad '80s songs. Yeah, sounds uh, great. Which, are, which in go. effect, are the late '70s songs. <laughs> now we were talking about improv here just a few moments ago, Roscoe. Perhaps we should tell um, uh, our our gentle listener about the improv experience we had recently. We went to I.O. Okay. Formerly known as Improv Olympia, yes. but you can't Small say that Small I, capital O. Oh, by the way, before we move on, let me just say that it's TonyLovesTina.com. Yes. TonyLovesTina.com is the website where you can go to learn more about the show, see reviews, and buy tickets. Okay. So we went to the I.O. <laughs> and they now have... I had the, I had the boysenberry syrup. Oh, I'm sorry. I <laughs> thought IHOP. I'm sorry. Oh, no, 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 no. We're we went to IO. They now have four theaters, and on a Saturday night, 10 different shows performed. And we went to Improvised Shakespeare. The Improvised Shakespeare Company, which is a fully formed uh, entity company. They have their own website. They have several traveling companies. They're, they were hosted by, hosted by IO? They, they appear okay. at the IO. Uh, I imagine they have worked out some sort of contract to do shows okay. there. And uh, IO is happy to have them. And I'm sure many of their members are IO alum or current uh, participants. It was astounding. (laughs) They take one single suggestion at the beginning, and they're five guys. This happened to be five men on stage. They take one single suggestion from the audience of of a possible title. That's all. That's all they want. Just somebody shout out a title. And what was it? Handlebars. It was uh, without handlebars. Without handlebars. Was the handlebars. one that they finally <laughs> that they finally chose, and then suddenly a play breaks out, and one of the actors just suddenly just came forward and did a Shakespearean prologue like you would have before any comedy in, or tragedy or in something. Iambic pentameter. In improvised. rather rhyming iambic pentameter, improvised, oh talking about something about facial hair or I guess they Handlebar they, they, they sure. eventually twisted it into a whole facial hair motif that traveled throughout the show. Well, and as they say, they are about to create a fully developed play and characters before your very eyes that's never been done and never will be done ever, ever again. It's only for us for that night. So immediately they make you feel special. They make you feel booth one while you're sitting there. Well, it, it was amazing. It was at times almost jaw-droppingly inspiring. I, I, I cannot tell you how talented these people were and, and how amazing the storyline and plot was. It was and, hilarious. And, and they kept pulling it all together. And, and so, so to do this, you have to be a good improviser. You have to be a good actor. 
you have to know Shakespeare, yeah. and you have to have the brilliance to just come up with rhymes. And you off have the to top be a brave, brave. You got to be brave. And this yeah. this show was an exhausting two two hours. Uh, it went. I think it ran a little longer than two hours. And then they had a 45-minute break, and they were going to do it all over again for another audience. Unbelievable. And I even said, I, I think, let's think about staying, because I'd love to see what they do next. That was my first question, was I would love to see it side-by-side uh, side with something else and see you know, how many times they go into the bag of tricks, or if there is a bag of tricks. That would have been an interesting thing. I, I suspect there's a small bag of tricks, mm -hmm. but it, you know, they take no time. They, they get the suggestion, and it's not like they go backstage and huddle for five minutes right. and then come out and present this play. They're like, all right, we present for you now William Shakespeare's Without handlebars. <laughs> and this guy walks forward yeah. and starts the play. And much like you said about Tony and Tina's wedding, you could go back to this over and over yeah. and over again. You could go every night if you wanted to, and it would always be something different. Yeah. And all kinds of great references. <laughs> but what if the lockets that were found around our neck when we were abandoned as infants? <laughs> 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 one, one sort of old peasant guy says, oh, yes, master, I was out sweeping outside. <laughs> and the guy says, ah, yes, sweeping outside, the chore that never ends. <laughs> <laughs> but I've rarely seen uh, Gary so excited. Gary was thrilled. Well, you know why? So it, excited it's, by it's, it. It's, it's that great sort of thing that is, that is Monty Python, that is uh, Dudley Moore and Peter Cook. It's smart, silly. It's smart, silly, and it's so hard to find that because we, you know, we have gross, silly, and scatological, silly, and that we see in so many movies and all that stuff. But smart, silly is a tough thing to come across in our culture. Yeah, these now. were five really smart guys. Yeah. They were quick-minded, quick-witted, fast, agile, funny. And they just inhabit a character. Suddenly, a new character would be introduced on the stage because they just thought of it and introduced themselves as a guard or the bad, the bad evil queen, which was my, my favorite thing when he was yes. draped in the black. Well, yes. no one will understand what I'm talking about, but it was all absolutely fantastic. And I, I want to go from the sublime to the ridiculous a little bit. <laughs> and uh, read a little something from the New York Times, Ben Brantley's review of the recent Cherry Orchard, which opened, <laughs> which you, uh, a couple of episodes ago, Roscoe, were loath to comment on because you had read some things in advance and were like, mm, this is the... Uh, uh, this is the Diane Lane and uh, Joel Gray version of yes. the Cherry Orchard. <laughs> I'll just read a couple of things. Toward the welcome end of the Roundabout Theater Productions... <laughs> terminally confused production of Chekhov's The Cherry Orchard, a character who has just exhausted himself by dancing like James Brown on steroids laments, quote, oh, if only we could move faster through this next part. <laughs> uh, that's, the, that's the opening paragraph. Later on, he goes on to say, in any case, they all share the same bizarre St. Vitus affliction, presumably caused by all that social anxiety. The ensemble's endless agitation exudes the go-for-broke busyness that performers usually try out in exploratory rehearsals and then discard. <laughs> oh. From the get-go, people are forever falling down, tripping over furniture, breaking things, weaving cats' cradles out of yarn, and, it would seem, forgetting their lines. Oh. 
Yes, there is no spontaneity in their clumsiness, nor any sense of the cast members sharing a common approach. Sometimes it feels as if they had all memorized their parts in sequestered isolation, then arrived at the stage door to be slipped into fancy costumes, <laughs> dosed with amphetamines, and pushed under blinding lights with the instructions, be wacky. <laughs> oh! Wow. One last thing. Well, it's true for the first three acts anyway. The fourth and final act has the slow-moving robotic effect you associate with people who have been heavily sedated. So it's amphetamines in the first act and sedation in the second act. From beginning to end, he he obviously was thrilled with the production. Thrilled, thrilled, but we can't use that word. I just did. I'm reminded of that that aspiring playwrights used to send uh, scripts to George Bernard Shaw for review. And unsolicited, of course. You reminded me of it when you were talking about that first thing, the, the welcome ending or whatever. Yes. <laughs> so they used to have the scripts printed in, on, in accordion style, and you'd have to literally, like the old books, you'd have to cut the pages in order to oh, see well. them, you know, ah. the way they used to print them. So you knew that if only the first three or four pages were cut, no one read past that point. So he would read them, and he would send them back, and the playwrights would get, you know, you know only read three pages of my script. How can you give it such a scathing criticism and, and Shaw said one need not eat the whole apple to know that it's rotten <laughs> 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 the other one that I loved of his was just a, a quick uh, retort which was the covers of your script are too far apart <laughs> <laughs> wow that's great that's Can, like saying I, I saw your performance from the back of the house wish you were there yeah. <laughs> oh that's a good that, one George S. Kaufman wrote that about the Marx Brothers yeah you sort of called this, Roscoe, a few uh, episodes ago. War Paint is moving to Broadway. I, I can't believe it. At the Nederlander Theater, begins previews uh, March 6th of 2017. That's right around our birthdays. Is that your birthday? My birthday is March 4th. Oh, yes. It's, John right, be- it's right between our birthdays. <laughs> John Philip Sousa. March 4th. And, and you. <laughs> As you had said, however, you you think the show needs some work before they actually open, and and you know, granted, they will. I mean, there's there's a lot of smart people involved in that show, and and a lot of talented people involved in that show. They're probably eminently aware of the problems that it has, but it's been announced they're going to Broadway. I bet you're going to have to go see it again. I, I won't see it unless there's a compelling reason to see it again. And the, and the big weakness to the show, uh, according to Roscoe and other people that I, I have talked to who have seen it, is that in real life, the two of them never met, even though they were contemporaries and... Com- Lived in New York City. Competitors. This is Elizabeth Arden and Helena Rubinstein. They never meet. And so here's a plot line that you can't really build, and they don't attempt to create any sort of imagined meeting of them except oh at, they don't except at the end it's very the very end but they don't pretend that they have known each other all these years so it's always elizabeth arden scene helena rubinstein scene elizabeth arden oh, has wow. a scene helena rubinstein has a scene so it's they, two it's two one woman shows packaged yeah, together and, and, they'll, and there'll be split scenes where they'll sing a number together but they're they're not together right my heart is broken a man doesn't love me Look at how my mouth is quivering. That's so safe, though. That's such a safe yeah. way to play. So it. I thought, you know, as I said, if you're going to make up the end, well, make make up the whole show. Exactly. Just have them know each other exactly. the entire time. Yeah, I, I wanted to mention an actress uh, who is her name is Kate Schindel. Don't really have too much of a comment about this, but um, Kate Schindel was Miss Illinois 
she uh, went to Northwestern. As Miss Illinois, she won the Miss America pageant in 1998. She is now president of the Actors' Equity Association. And why do I mention her at the age of 39? She is now playing the role of Alison Bechtel in the national tour of Fun Home. And she will be here in Chicago. I just think it's an amazing, an amazing story. And they asked her in an article about, well, look, you're president of Actors' Equity and you've been Miss America. Why would you want to perform this eight shows a week on tour? And she said, well, I'm straight and I'm single and a girl's got to make a living, doesn't she? (laughs) And in three in three months, she'll have insurance. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Referring That's to the, equity, the fact yeah. that on an equity actor's contract, after three months, you become eligible I think for it's less than the that, health actually, plan. But, well, yeah. I think this is fabulous for her. She was in Jekyll and Hyde um, on Broadway. She was in Cabaret. She was in Legally Blonde. Um, she's got quite the career, but I was very, very, very uh, impressed. Let's revisit something we did a few weeks ago. Uh, I've now coined a phrase. I'd like to call it remembering Roscoe. Remembering Roscoe. And I'm referring, of course, to your grandfather, Roscoe Fraser, and uh, his scrapbook of memorabilia. My my grandfather was a interesting character who was seemingly known by everyone in Indiana. And he worked in agriculture and horticulture at Purdue, knew everyone in the world. And one of the relationships he was most proud of is that he was a mentor to Birch Bayh, who later became the governor of Indiana, the original Birch Bayh, who I believe is still living and well into his 80s. His son has been senator, a senator from Indiana and the governor of Indiana, then left show business or politics, and now is running for senator again. So my grandfather spent the last 10 years of his life putting together these scrapbooks. So he knew everyone, knew Birch by, they corresponded. And and I think this is an interesting artifact. This is a a real letter on you. Ah, yes. So, and, and here's the context. My grandfather died nearly 40 years ago. He put together 20 of these scrapbooks and they have sat in storage low these 40 years. And I thought, well, we should do something with these. So I dug them out, and I've been reading through them. And this is a short letter. About seven months after John F. Kennedy was assassinated, Ted Kennedy was broke his back in a horrible little plane crash. Yes, yes, yes. Also, on the, the plane only had seven people. The pilot, Senator Kennedy, a native Senator Kennedy, Birch Bayh, and his wife. Oh, well, on and, that flight. On that flight. And the plane was trying to land... And they don't know what happened. It literally fell out of the sky and landed in an apple orchard. The pilot was killed. Senator Kennedy's aide was killed. Birch Bayh and his wife walked away. Birch Bayh pulled Kennedy out of the plane and then ran to a highway to try to flag down cars for help. So this happened in June of 1964. So I think this is kind of lovely. July 23rd, 1964. Dear Esther and Roscoe, both of us were so appreciative of your thoughtful expression of concern during this trying period. We are so grateful that God saw fit to spare us and Senator Kennedy, yet we grieve for the families and friends of the two fine people who lost their lives. Your thoughts and prayers have greatly comforted and strengthened us during this distressing period. It gives us a warm feeling to know that you were standing by us. We know you will all join us in continued prayers for Senator Kennedy's rapid recovery. According to the latest report, 
He should be back on the job shortly. Thank you so much for your thoughtfulness. Sincerely, Birch and Marvella. And then he's written in hand, sure good to hear from you, Roscoe. Best regards, Birch. Holy cow. So isn't that kind of a, like, a cool thing to have that in a is. scrapbook? Very yeah, much so. yeah. yeah. And 20 of these, you said? And plan, tell, tell your, your listeners, this is no little leaflet here either. No, this no is a these, bound are, book. these are uh, scrapbook-sized uh, volumes, leather-bound. It's just a beautiful archive yeah. of a and, life. Yeah, and what I had forgotten is that I'm named, you know, I'm Roscoe, he's Roscoe. His nickname in high school was Butch. Do you think I could ever get people to start calling me Butch? <laughs> no. Mic drop. <laughs> and um, scene. And scene. He saved everything. So in one of the scrapbooks, I have a Crayola drawing of a rooster that he did in 1899 when he was six years old. And he has his dance card from prom filled out. Card. And it still has a feather and the miniature pencil that was used to write in the oh, names. Man. So these I, are... I love this stuff not only for what it is, but also for the mindset that put that together. But we don't have that now in the digital age. We have nothing tactile anymore. And these are like real, you know, objects. And, and to take the time to put it together, it's just such a, a good use of life. You know, it's a good yeah. use of time. It's just so touching. What eventually happens to this? Well, you could leave it to me. You could distribute it. You could leave copies to all of your friends. Yes. Maybe I'll just wander up and down the streets of Chicago handing people pages that I tear out of the scrapbook. Stand in front of edible arrangements with me and read it aloud. Come on, Butch. We'll have a great time. Roscoe, have you, uh, have you been reading about the ruby slippers? Yes. Hmm. Possibly the most famous footwear in America, a pair of uh, Dorothy's red uh, red uh, ruby slippers uh, worn by Judy Garland in the 1939 movie, of course, The Wizard of Oz, uh, are showing their age. So the Smithsonian Institution, home to the slippers for nearly 40 years, is raising money to save them at a very eye-catching $300,000. That seems like an awful lot of money. What are they going to do? Encrust them with diamonds? Well, it says in this case, the money will be used to study and repair the shoes material and build a special temperature-controlled display case. Mm. The slippers were uh, commercially manufactured shoes uh, bought by uh, the MGM Studios. They were dyed red, and the studio's designers added a red netting cover with sequins over the top of them. Now in their eighth decade, they are fragile. The paint on their arches is cracked and flaking, and they are deteriorating. Uh, Richard Barden, who is leading the conservation effort, said the shoes are complex artifacts that contain at least... 12 materials from steel to cotton. Now, we've seen a pair of, of the red slippers. Yes. The very pair that the Smithsonian has. I didn't think they were in such bad shape. And they're trying to raise this money through Kickstarter, by the way. Yeah. Does, uh, does this get into the controversy of the fact that there's something like 12 pairs of ruby slippers? It, it does. And- it does. This, uh, this Richard Barden, um, he said two conservators... 
and five scientists within the Smithsonian, as well as outside consultants, would work on the slippers for as long as nine months to a year. Uh, here's the provenance. The slippers were given to the museum in 1979 by an anonymous uh, donor, and in the years since, they have been on almost continuous display. Uh, at one point, they were lent to the uh, Victorian Albert Museum in London for a few weeks for a Hollywood costume exhibition, but for the most part, they've just been on display at the Smithsonian. At least seven and possibly as many as ten other pairs of ruby slippers were made for the movie. One pair was stolen. Another was sold recently at auction and will be featured in the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences Museum, scheduled to open in Los Angeles uh, very soon. The ruby slippers in the museum's possession are actually a mismatched pair. She explained that the museum was confident Miss Garland had actually worn them in the movie because after they were taken off view recently for a closer inspection, one shoe was found to have said inside, number one, Judy Garland. <laughs> and the other said, number six, Judy Garland. Her feet were small. The shoes are size five, though one is slightly wider than the other. Uh, they also have an added layer of red felt on the sole that was meant to muffle the sound of her dancing on the yellow brick road. So they're trying to raise $300,000, and it seems to be working by Wednesday afternoon, which is just a few days ago um, from this uh, recording time. Uh, on only the third day of the campaign, nearly 3,000 donors had given over $165,000 already with another 28 days to go. Holy cow. H how much did you give, Paul? I don't, well. <laughs> you know, I, come on, come on, come <laughs> he on. He turned over his directing fee from Tony and Tina's wedding <laughs> yeah. because Judy is so important That's to what him. it was. That's what it was. <laughs> I just, what I can't understand is how it could take $300,000 to restore a pair of shoes. Now, I know that they're, you know, it's a piece of memorabilia and all that. But just the idea of how much more is there to do aside from rebuilding them. You know, two conservators and several scientists don't come cheap. <laughs> well, and, and this <laughs> is, you gotta pay for this stuff somehow. And this is the other thing I thought about. We, we lent them to some museum overseas. Ruby red slippers missing at sea. <laughs> and that would be tragic. Wah, wah, wah. Well, I think of these things. They put the shoes in the black box, so the shoes are always protected. Oh, yeah. oh now, yeah. I can, now I can sleep. I have a shoe story, a very brief shoe story, and you'll appreciate this because it's yeah. pure Chicago. I was working at Glasgow's, a bar at Halstead and Webster uh, near DePaul, and we had to do work on the bar or something, and we had pulled some wood away from it was one of the Brunswick back bars. Before Brunswick made bowling alleys, they made these back bars, beautifully ornate carved pieces. Not really carved, it was epoxy, but it looked carved. <laughs> and we uh, took a panel out, and there was a shoe back there wrapped in a piece of newspaper and wrapped up in cloth. The newspaper was from the Columbian Expo, and the shoe was like a hooker shoe, like a, a high heel hooker shoe. Looked like a, a back to the hookers. A painted, oh, a it's always shoe. the hookers with it's you. Always the hookers with me. <laughs> a hooker shoe. I've never heard. That no, no. It, it looked before. like like a like right. a lady of the evening shoe, and right. the whole heel, what elevated the back of the shoe, was a Ferris wheel. It was a Ferris wheel design because the the Columbian Expo had the first Ferris wheel. <gasps> 
The whole idea about beating Eiffel and his tower, yeah, because the Paris Expo was before that, mm -hmm. and the whole the the actual line by that David Burnham said on the train coming in is there's a guy Ferris, he's got a wheel, because that's how they were going to beat yeah. they were going to beat the Eiffel Tower because the lines were so long to get to the top of the Eiffel Tower that if we can fix that we have a wheel, wow. so it's a piece of it's obviously from that era, but and it's got to be a hooker shoe because no no and so this was woman. just found it there? was in it was in the wall like a little bit of a little mini time capsule. So like do you, what became yep. of it? What? Oh, it's on the back bar. Interesting. Can, can you think of any other iconic movie memorabilia like the Ruby Slippers? The Maltese Falcon. Well, there's that. My thinking was uh, Rosebud the Sled. That that uh, which uh, Steven Spielberg Steven owns. Spielberg yeah, he paid it. a lot of money for it. There's a number of those around. A couple of balsa um, wood um, imitations of it that were used in several shots in the movie. Marilyn Monroe's dress from the Seven Year Itch. I have one more ruby slipper story. Some years ago, when I worked in radio, I interviewed a man who had written a book called The Search for the Ruby Slippers. What this was about was the fact that there were 10 or 12 different pairs. And one of the stories was, you know, MGM had an auction in the late 60s and they sold off everything and they didn't really realize the value of this. And, and, and I think someone who worked at MGM bought a pair of the ruby red slippers for $50 and he took them home to his boyfriend and his boyfriend looked at them and then promptly burst into tears and sobbed because he was so happy to have the ruby red slippers. <laughs> but there's been, but there's been controversy over were these shoes that were made for the movie yeah. and never used and what was actually used and what did we see and do they really count if they were made, but not ever seen on screen. Well, it's a whole book about that. So after about 100 pages, it's like, I don't care about that. I, I know enough. Yeah, I know exactly. enough that we don't know, yeah. but I don't need yeah. to read a full book on which, which slipper is which. Yeah. Wanted to mention to our listeners once again that at the Chicago Podcast Festival on November 19th, that's a Saturday night at 10 o'clock, we will be podcasting live from the 1700 Theater at Steppenwolf. And our guest will be the amazing and the aforementioned I.O. founder and proprietor, Charna Halpern. Uh, she will be our guest that uh, evening um, live. Tickets can be uh, gotten at Steppenwolf.org, or you can go to ChicagoPodcastFestival.org. Um, the phone number at Steppenwolf is 312-335-1650, and they're only 20 bucks. I mean, it's they're nice. selling on StubHub now for a hundred dollars. Are they? Yep. Yeah, scalpers. They're scalpers. <sighs> That's my day job. I scalp low numbers at the deli counter. <laughs> That's what I do. <laughs> What, what, what? I got a seven. I got a seven. What, one day we're going to have to podcast uh, from jail where you are. <laughs> You're going to have to be prison merciful. block 29. <laughs> it's booth one. In preparation for Charna, and we've been talking about improv a little mm -hmm. bit, I'd like to try something with you. I'd like to try an improv game with the three of us. Oh, and boy. It's a, it's a simple one, and I'm sure you've both heard of it. It's called Three Line Scene. In this exercise, two players must discover a scene in only three lines of dialogue. So we're not talking about creating an improvisational Shakespeare play here. We're just talking about three lines. This is a good way to teach players to say exactly what needs to be said as clearly as possible, or in other words, to be concise. You okay with that, Roscoe? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm so worried I'm going to fail publicly. <laughs> 
So, so we each say just one so line. So three line scenes teach a player how to add as it is used in the famous expression, yes and. Mm-hmm. Agreeing with the opening line won't advance the scene so much or provide any new information to build a scene together. Contributing something extra gives extra meaning to the opening line and helps create a scene. So we're looking for a three line scene. One person says the first line. The second person says the second line. The, th- the first person then says the third line. And, and we'll, we'll just see how this goes. I'd like to try this for a few minutes and see if we're any good at it. I'm getting the information from Charna Halpern and Del Close and Kim Howard Johnson's famous uh, book, their Bible, I guess, called Truth in Comedy. It's the manual of improvisation, and uh, everyone I know who's had any career in comedy or improvisation has read it, studied it, and learned many of the techniques. So would you guys be game for playing? I'd be game. Do we have any sort of suggestion for the first line? None whatsoever. None whatsoever. Okay. Roscoe, you want to start? David, you know that I always hated Paris. What did Paris ever do to you? The war. <laughs> the war? The war. I don't know. Maurice Chevalier. <laughs> Actually, I violated it. That was not a yes and. I flipped, it, oh. I flipped it back on you. True. I, I, All right. I, 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 did not, I was not uh, yes anding. All right. True. Let's try this again. Gary, you start. I, I can't understand why my watch is always running fast. Because you buy cheap watches. <laughs> Okay, so the, the, the point of the game is not to be is not to explain the first line. Damn it. The point of the game is to enhance the first line right. and create a scene. All right. For instance, you could have said something like, "If I ever give you an anniversary gift and you don't complain about it, you asshole, uh, that will be a miracle." Oh, that would be good. All right. Paul. Am I kicking it off? Yeah. All right. Uh, It'll be either one of us. Okay. Yeah, whoever, I'll, well, one this is what we'll do. I'll say it, and then whoever... Uh... Yeah, 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 absolutely. Okay. Is there something wrong with my carrot cake? It's a little rich with lobster bisque. <laughs> You're a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> it's just been a fattening meal. <laughs> It's sort of like a, a gang haiku. Can, can we do another one? Okay. This, this one I love, and, and, you'll, and this is a great little exercise that I did with my students uh, when I didn't teach improv. I was teaching beginning acting in the UCLA Extension program. This one is fun. We will, st- we will tell a story, but uh, we will each tell a word in the, in the sentence. Oh, yes. And it has yes. to be alphabetical. So alphabetical. you start with A, and you go around and you tell the tale that way. So we'll start here and we'll go this way. All right. Abner. Bennett. Caught. David. Elongating. <laughs> Frankfurters. Gregariously. <laughs> However. I. Just. Knifed. <laughs> Lorenzo. Matarazzo. <laughs> Nicely. <laughs> Obversely. Pierre. Renoir. Roscoe. We're going to skip over Q, the Q entirely. Q, Q comes out. <laughs> <laughs> However, Pierre quickly responded, Sal, take umbrage. <laughs> Vicariously, 
<laughs> Wait, you used that before. There's something else. That's true. It's <laughs> that, that little known V that appears between <laughs> D and E. <laughs> that, this is yeah, little, they're, it's they're, a small V. Yeah, there are now 27 letters in the alphabet. <laughs> V's in there twice. <laughs> Little V A B C D V took give Gary a cookie. He thinks there's a V. Umbridge vicariously. Whenever xylophones, yak, zithers, xylophones, yak, zithers. That's the best we can come up with. That was a band I sang with in college. Well, that was an interesting experiment, both of you. That was easier. Well, it's easier because easier. it doesn't really require too much thinking. And, and I'd like Should to ask... Should we do the three-line scene again? Yeah, let's do the three-line scene again. I've told you a thousand times that fuchsia doesn't look good on you. Well, you told me to name the dog fuchsia in the first place. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's great. That's... that's a, and I bet funny. all of our listeners who've not gone to an improv show are ordering their tickets right now oh. because we were we really revealed the brilliance <laughs> or, of, or, or, or canceling their internet. <laughs> or canceling their this internet. This is sort of like when Lenny Bruce was in court for his obscenity trials and, and the bailiff would read his routine out loud to show how obscene it was. He goes, I'm going to go to jail because this guy's got crappy timing. He <laughs> 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 so would just read it you know, off the page. You know, something that happened to Which me when I, when I was uh, 22 and I just moved to Chicago, I had some refreshments, and then I went to see a play by myself. And I sat next to a handsome young man, and he said hello, and I said hello. And he goes, you know what? You look like Lenny Bruce. <laughs> Great. I'm glad at 22 I look like a 44-year-old heroin <laughs> addict. I'm going to have a bright future in Chicago. I'm going to be the belle of many balls. <laughs> you look like Lenny Bruce. You mean now? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Speaking of the bell of many balls, it's time to move on to our closing segment, our kiss of death segment today. Uh, you'll you'll enjoy this one, Paul. I think. And and uh, by the way, thanks some... for stopping by. Oh, please! I'm glad I could drag you in off the street. I love and, uh, uh, Come on in and, and spend some time with. Reminds us. me of, of my new podcast. I should say, Banquette Two. Sorry, Agnes Nixon passed away. The Grand Dame of daytime television drama, like to say that everyone's life is a soap opera. For proof, she offered up her own. She had an abandonment complex because her parents divorced soon after she was born. She felt painfully different because the other children all seemed to have fathers. Hers was, quote, nearly psychotic and schemed to crush her post-collegiate dream of being a writer. He wanted his daughter to follow him into his business, which was designing burial garments. <laughs> Speaking of fun home, <laughs> don't they just shove you in your old your best? Is that suit? a garment without a back? What is that? You know. So I don't know. He arranged for her to meet uh, a woman named Erna Phillips at the time, a pioneering writer of radio serials, uh, who her father was certain would set her straight regarding the foolishness of a writing career. And then Nixon invariably inserted a soap opera staple into the story, the plot twist. During the meeting, Phillips looked up from reading the sample script that was Nixon's resume and asked, how would you like to work for me? 
Nixon went on to create such enduring daytime TV dramas as One Life to Live and All My Children. She died at a senior living center uh, recently. She was 93 years old. All My Children star and soap opera royalty Susan Lucci said, I adored her and admired her and I am forever grateful to her. Days of Our Lives head writer called Nixon a tiny lady, but a force of nature. The young and the restless actress Melissa Claire Egan remembered her as a true trailblazer. Although her characters were inevitably embroiled in melodrama, Nixon was repeatedly honored for elevating soaps during a television career that spanned more than 60 years. She brought attention to such once taboo topics as racism, AIDS, lesbian relationships, and teenage prostitution. In 1962, Nixon wrote a storyline for The Guiding Light on CBS about a character who develops uterine cancer and has a life-saving hysterectomy. The network and show sponsor Procter & Gamble agreed to the plot only if the words cancer, uterus, and hysterectomy were not used. She thought, hmm, well, that's going to be a little tough. So she had the doctor tell the patient that she had, quote, irregular cells rather than possible cancer, and it turned out to be very successful. When One Life to Live debuted in 1968, it featured a complicated story aimed at making viewers confront their prejudices. It involved a young black woman that the audience is led to believe is white. She plans to marry a white doctor, but later falls in love with a black resident. She wasn't trying to break barriers, uh, she said, but thought it was insane to say that entertainment and public service can never be in the same story. After writing the initial weeks of Search for Tomorrow for CBS in 1951, she played a role in the success of six other soap operas. She helped launch As the World Turns on CBS in 1956. Two years later, she joined the network's Guiding Light as head writer. In 64, she took charge of NBC's ratings challenged Another World, and turned it around. Within four years, ABC came calling with a powerful enticement, creative control. Her husband, Robert Nixon, left his job as a Chrysler Corporation executive, and the couple formed a company to produce her first solo effort, One Life to Live. Wow. Have you ever watched any of these soap operas when you were younger, Roscoe? I did. My mother watched As the World Turns from the day it went on the air until the day it went off the air. And her life for 50 years during the week was scheduled around noon to one. And she had, you know, it was like she lost a child or something. She had a very difficult time thinking, how do do I replace this? Really? When it went off the air, finally? When it went off the air. Well, One Life to Live quickly won praise for realism after a, a premiering in 1968. A story on teenage venereal disease caused 50,000 viewers to write in. When ABC wanted a second daytime drama, Nixon came up with All My Children in 1970. This is the one that I uh, got hooked on for a couple of years in the early 90s. Why? I have no idea. I just happened to be in a period of unemployment. (laughs) And I found my time at like two or three o'clock in the afternoon available, and I I was hooked. Nixon readily acknowledged all my children as her favorite dramatic offspring. The show was set in Pine Valley. Remember Pine Valley? The presumptive dramatic equivalent of Rosemont, the Philadelphia suburb where Nixon lived in a pre-revolutionary war home. She based arch-villain Adam Chandler, who, quote, didn't know how to love, on her father and gave her favorite character, wickedly manipulative Erica Kane, abandonment issues. 
Lucci became one of daytime television's most popular stars, playing Erica from the show's earliest days until the program's end in September 2011. And, and everybody jokes about her perennial nomination for an Emmy. Mm. She was nominated like 18 times before uh. she finally won. Uh, the name of entertainment is Escape, Nixon said, and it made her wealthy one excruciatingly slow plot turn at a time. <laughs> in the mid-1970s, Nixon had sold both One Life to Live and All My Children to ABC for an undisclosed disclosed some ching ching but I bet it was a lot I loved the writing and I hated the business uh, Nixon told the Times in 1998 she was born Agnes Eckhart on December 10th, 1922 in Chicago uh, to Harry and Agnes Eckhart and grew up in Nashville living with her bookkeeper mother and extended family since her parents had gotten divorced she went to Northwestern University where she studied drama alongside Charlton Heston <laughs> and Patricia Neal. Wow. But she felt outclassed as an actor, so she turned to writing. Days after earning her bachelor's degree in the late 1940s, Nixon was writing for Phillips on a radio soap. When Phillips headed west to work in television, Nixon moved to New York to write for early primetime TV dramas. On a blind date in 1950, she met her future husband, the aforementioned Robert, and soon agreed to marry him on one condition, that she could continue her career. They settled in Philadelphia, and she had four children in five years. She returned to soaps, writing at home, and mailing her scripts in to New York. For years, she and her husband split their time between Philadelphia and the New York City area. After he died in 1996, Nixon said she found writing All My Children to be therapeutic. By then, she had long devoted herself to long-range plotting and still followed her mentor's maxim. We don't just live the high points and the low points. We live minute by minute. Did you watch Soap Uppers, Paul? I did not. How I learned that sometimes women get pregnant and don't want to be pregnant was in fourth or fifth grade from watching the soap opera. And my mother was appalled. And your mother probably learned everything she knows about life from Agnes, Agnes Nixon's Agnes writing. Nixon, You're about the same age. Agnes Nixon uh, was 93. My mother's 93. I'm sorry, there is one I used to watch, uh, Dark Shadows. I love oh, Dark Shadows. Shadows. Barnabas Collins. Yes. Jonathan Frid. Yeah. That one I used to watch. Werewolves and Vampires. Yeah. Uh, those of our listeners who don't know what we're talking about, look it up. It's well worth Post the time to awesome. look at the reruns. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, Paul, thanks a lot for dropping oh, in. Oh, hey, again. thank Appreciate you both. It. Gary Russell, oh, love being here. Great to see you. It. Congratulations. Thank you. Looking forward to seeing you there. Can't wait the to come. We're looking forward to our Booth One experiences. TonyLovesTina.com. Gotta love Shameless it. Shameless promotion. We're going to play out today with one of the great bad songs of the 1980s, akin to something you might hear at Tony and Tina's wedding, Mr. Roboto by Styx from 1983. Hey, review us on iTunes, everyone. You like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, email us at alist at booth-one.com. For Booth One, this is Gary Zabinski. And Roscoe Fraser. Saying, uh, keep listening and so long until next time. Say goodnight, Paul. Goodnight, Paul. You're wondering who I am. Secret, secret, I've got a secret. Machine or mannequin. Secret, secret.